If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Shakespeare Past Master, our series exploring some of the playwright's most famous works and what they tell us about history. I'm Matt Elton. In this episode, we're discussing what Shakespeare's Julius Caesar reveals about the ancient world and the way it was viewed at the turn of the 17th century. First performed in 1599, the tragedy of Julius Caesar transports the audience back to the ancient world as a conspiracy grows to assassinate the Roman leader. But how accurately does the play depict that time, and to what extent is it instead reflecting the political anxieties of Shakespeare's own time? I spoke to Islam Issa, Professor of Literature and History at Birmingham City Institute of Media and English, and an author, broadcaster and curator who has written widely on Shakespeare, to find out more. So we are here talking today about Julius Caesar, the Shakespeare play, And there might be people listening who have only really heard of it or don't really know how it fits into sort of Shakespeare's canon more generally. How would you introduce this play to people who aren't familiar with it? I'd start by saying that Shakespeare's writing it at a time when he's taking London by storm towards the end of the 16th century. By this stage, he's written histories about England and and several comedies. As far as the play is concerned, it tells the story as most people know of the conspiracy to kill the Roman dictator, Julius Caesar. It dramatises his assassination by a group of senators. It dramatises their planning, their execution and the aftermath. But the climactic scene really is Caesar being stabbed repeatedly on stage, which doesn't always happen in, in Shakespeare's plays, that the death is on the stage. This is very much a climactic scene. But it's not the ending, it's the thir- It's in the third act of a, of a five-act play. The play fits somewhere between Shakespeare's histories and tragedies. And we might reflect on that further. It doesn't have a clear tragic hero, for example, as, as do the other tragedies. I'd say it's quite a bit more dramatised in comparison to some of the English histories. And it's part of a series. I think that's important to remember. One could say that that the Roman plays are a series. This play ends with the rise of Mark Antony, which paves the way conveniently for Antony and Cleopatra, the play. In terms of themes, well, there's 
authority, morality, succession. I mean, there are lots. I think it's it's open to interpretation, and maybe we could think about those further as well. So obviously, Julius Caesar the play takes its name from historical events and historical figures. Do we get a sense of the extent to which the events it depicts are based on and accurate of actual real history? Well, the central event of the play is indeed historical. It's the death of Caesar, which has been called the most famous historical event in the West outside of the Bible. And it did take place on the morning of 15th of March, 44 BC, or as the play popularises, the the Ides of March. But we might start by remembering two things, I think. The first is that Shakespeare never left England, and uh, he's very much an armchair traveller. He's also very reliant on what he reads, so histories, atlases, and so on. And the second point is that his friend Ben Jonson tells us about Shakespeare's language proficiency, to quote that he was small... Latin, or he had small Latin and less Greek. So Shakespeare's reading the histories in translation. He's not reading the original Plutarch. So Plutarch is writing in Greek a good millennium and a half before Shakespeare, in the, around the first century uh, CE. He's very reliant on Plutarch for his plays, for Julius Caesar, Antony Cleopatra, Coriolanus, the time of Athens. But he's reading, or he's in the 1590s, Shakespeare becomes very interested in the translation of Plutarch, the lives of the noble Greeks and Romans, which is translated by Sir Thomas North, and it's published in 1579. And so he, he seems quite obsessed with North's Plutarch at this particular juncture. So as far as historical accuracy is concerned, I think that's a question we might ask Plutarch rather than Shakespeare. We could say that Plutarch's relatively reliable, but not entirely. He's he's a Greek historian who becomes a Roman citizen, so therefore his allegiances are to Rome. We see that more clearly when Rome is up against Egypt, the way he depicts Cleopatra in that. As far as Caesar's concerned, Plutarch seems relatively, relatively reliable. By the standards of his time, he might be a little sort of sensationalist. Shakespeare is obviously using this, but he's, he's using it for imaginative ends and he's trying to entertain people. So the historical event, we know that you know, 60 or more men participated in the assassination. Caesar stabbed 23 times, according to those sources. But given that this is a drama, it's probably the characterization where Shakespeare begins to change things. Probably give a couple of examples, if you want, from, of how Shakespeare uses Plutarch. Uh, so, so one is, for example, how Plutarch sees Brutus. So this is where we think about the history as being a little biased. So he says he was a marvellous, lowly and gentle person, noble-minded, would never be in any rage, nor carried away with pleasure or covetousness, but had ever an upright mind with him, would never yield to any wrong or injustice. So this is a his- an historian speaking about an historical character. And so North's translation, that's North's translation that I've just read, I think we see its influence on Shakespeare because he, he does present Brutus as, as quite a commendable character on the whole, or he's, he's probably one of the most upstanding characters in the play. Though I'd say Shakespeare probably complicates it in terms of who the protagonist is per se, specifically. Another example, I think, from Plutarch is, is just the speeches. So we have this famous speech from, from Brutus, you know, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. And there's all sorts of rhetorical devices in this, in this speech. But Plutarch just writes, a multitude being gathered together, Brutus made an oration to them, very popular and proper for the state of affairs. So it's no speech, it's just, it's just the description and Shakespeare 
uses that. There's also one of my favourite Shakespeare speeches, cowards die many times before their deaths, the valiant never taste of death but once, that Julius Caesar says when he's, when he's warned about dying. In Plutarch, it's just that Caesar believed it was better to die once than to always be afraid of death. So beyond doubt, Shakespeare does embellish and reimagine his source material for dramatic purposes. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You mentioned at the start there that we should see this play as being part of a series. And I wanted to talk a bit about Shakespeare's history plays more generally. Why was the history genre so popular during this period? And was it quite new in terms of when it had developed in its modern form at the time? That's a question actually that takes us back to the the first folio, because uh, the first folio of this book of 36 uh, Shakespeare plays is published seven years after Shakespeare's death by by his friends. Half of its plays weren't previously printed like, like Julius Caesar. And they titled it Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and tragedies. So for the first time, as a result of the folio, the plays are grouped into these categories. And some of these are open for debate. For example, The Merchant of Venice is a comedy. I'd say we have tragic comedies. Some scholars have called plays like that the problem plays. And then you have the Roman plays like Julius Caesar, which in the first folio is under tragedies. So it's not actually listed as a history, and people often assume it's a history. It's called The Tragedy of Julius Caesar, and yet it's been dubbed Shakespeare's first great tragedy. I think that's the first indication of a kind of poetic license or creative freedom that Shakespeare has in his plays, and it starts at the genre, it starts that far out. The histories that, I mean, they're, they're con- the histories that, that are listed as histories are more concerned with English politics. They start with King John and go all the way to Henry VIII, so from the 11th, maybe 12th century, 12th century to the... Uh, 16th century, you know, the Hundred Year War with France, Hundred Years War, the uh, Wars of the Roses between York and Lancaster. What, what these histories do, in answer to your question, is they deal with sort of the hot potatoes of his time, you know, the notion of succession to the throne, what it means to have authority. And in fact, most of his plays, even the comedies, have dukes and monarchs and so on, and people of authority in them. So power is a central theme. I just add, I think Shakespeare's changed our perception of genre. So that there were plays uh, about this kind of thing. This is a popular kind of play, by the way. Between in the 1580s and so in sort of 15 years before Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, there were four anonymous plays about Julius Caesar at, at the time. And and after Shakespeare, we have another anonymous one and two more in quick succession by William Alexander and George Chapman. So Julius Caesar is a very popular subject. Shakespeare's not not doing anything new per se. But what he is doing is changing our perception of genre, basing things broadly on historical materials, but but making it very hard for us to figure out whether they're tragedies, histories, or even to some extent comedies. And why is he doing that? I think he's showing off. The humanists at the time 
spoke about imitatio, like the creative imitation as, as something that proves genius. And he's doing that by transforming older material in such a relevant way to inform, to entertain. We also can't forget that Shakespeare's a businessman. And this, this might annoy people because we see him as this, you know, Swan of Avon who's, who's writing about these ideals. He's very interested in commercial theatre, trying to make money, and he's, he wants to put backsides on seats. And this kind of topic is, is going to do that. And, and you alluded there to the fact that he was, to some extent, talking about the concerns of his own time. Why is this particular play interesting to consider in terms of, I guess, how it portrays the ancient world, but also how it portrays the Elizabethan world and the Elizabethan view of the ancient world, I suppose? Yeah, this play in particular, there's a kind of neoclassical feel to, to it. It reminds its audiences of the ancient times when there was classical knowledge, like, you know, the Library of Alexandria or all these different philosophies that existed at the time. And this very much fits with Shakespeare's Renaissance period, I think, more conceptually. The Renaissance is asking big questions. What is life? What is art? What is science? What is scripture? And that's the same thing that was happening in the ancient times, in the classical times. So, so there's a kind of parallel between the interests in those big questions. Then the Elizabethan era is also really a period of power grabbing, polarisation. The Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, for instance, questioned the authority of the church, the authority of the Pope especially. There was interest in this in the so-called New World, with all this exploration and England's trying to be a big power and it's trying to expand in all sorts of directions in the same way that the Roman Empire once was a big power expanding in all sorts of directions. And essentially, it's a play about overthrowing a monarch. And, and, and I think that would have been unimaginable for the audience to imagine life without a monarch. There are huge question marks here about what happens with succession. Neither Julius Caesar nor Elizabeth I had clear successors, and Shakespeare is asking questions about succession here. Was he making any points about succession, or was he just sort of raising it as a sort of social concern? I don't think Shakespeare's giving everything away in this play. I think it refers to many of the things that concerned him, concerned his audiences. But I think in these history plays, in Julius Caesar, he appears to be reflecting things on stage, reflecting his society, reflecting its concerns on the stage. But I'd say that he does so by asking questions more than by answering them. And do we get a sense of how out of step or in step he was with wider society? Was he reflecting back at his audiences concerns that they would have had about succession and about power? Yeah, I think there are a few things to consider here. As I said, it's a popular subject and audiences want to know about this kind of subject, want to see this kind of subject. The politics, I'd say the key term is polarisation. There are those who love the Queen at the time and there are those who are completely opposed to her, who are actually planning to overthrow her. She has a real spy network in operation in order to uh, stop those kinds of attempts. And we know that soon after that, Shakespeare is also a Jacobean writer, remember, he's not just an Elizabethan writer. There's an attempt to blow up Parliament under King James. So there's, there's a similar polarisation when it comes to religion, not just when it comes to monarchy. So there's no one view in this period, and his audience would have come from both sides of the spectrum, especially the Globe Theatre, where you could pay a penny to stand in the pit, or you could pay lots of money and, and sit adjacent to the stage. 
So to a large extent, Shakespeare's showing this polarization on the stage. He's not necessarily putting himself on either side. He's neither with Caesar nor with the conspirators here. Any sympathy he shows for Brutus is because I think Brutus thinks things through and has, has a kind of conscience. I don't think it's because of a specific action. So I think it does reflect the kind of polarization that exists at the time. You talked about some of the characterization that Shakespeare does in the play. And I wondered whether there were any other insights it gives us into the ancient world itself, or whether the fact that there are, there are anachronistic things in here means we can't really use it as a reliable insight into the ancient world in any way, really. Yeah, Shakespeare uses, like we said, a range of sources and then adds his imaginative take. And that's where the anachronisms come in. You know, he does put events and people and so on in things outside of their historical era. But that's clearer in play like Julius Caesar, but he does it in lots of plays. So I think it is significant because in Julius Caesar, say, we're in ancient Rome, and yet Shakespeare introduces this clock that strikes. We have a stage direction, clock striking or something. And Caesar asks, what is it a clock, right? And, and that question by Caesar, what time is it, is actually very significant because either Shakespeare was ignorant of the fact that striking clocks weren't yet invented in Rome, or his use of anachronisms is proof that we are not supposed to be observing something solely about the ancient era. The audience is being invited to relate the events of this play to their own times. And in these history plays, as, as I've mentioned, I'd say that's part of Shakespeare asking questions of his audience. It's so interesting that he's using those kind of literary techniques to ask his audience to notice the fact he's making these parallels. It is, and I think the literary side of this play is, is key to its success at the time and to its um, lasting success. Because language or, or rhetoric is, is one of the, the biggest messages of this play, that the power of language or the danger of language. See, this play is 95% verse and, and only 5% of it is in prose. The conspirators, good or bad, or however you want to view them, they all use very powerful rhetoric. And yet, after the momentum, and this is a key moment for me in the play, after the momentum is all building up to the seconds where they kill Caesar, suddenly they kill another man, violently, on the stage, who is a poet, in a case of mistaken identity. They kill a poet. And I think that's, that's figurative. It's a figurative death. They kind of kill poetry, kill rhetoric, because... Rhetoric in this play becomes a source of evil, this, this persuasive language. And the mob, when it kills poetry, it's killing the real reason that rhetoric should be used, which is art rather than manipulation. And the result of using rhetoric selfishly is that the characters end themselves. They end their leadership, their lives through suicide. And once you kill words, you kill existence. I mean, Shakespeare's audience have been very aware of, of the start of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So everything happens through the word. So when the word or language is misused in this way, there are consequences. And I think that extends to, to the idea of tragic heroes. When you talk about literary devices, a tragic hero is someone that we are neither supposed to fully love nor fully hate. We're, we're supposed to um, sympathize with them and scorn, scorn them in equal measure. And there's a real ambiguity about who the tragic hero of this play is. Is it the eponymous? Is it Caesar? Is it Brutus, Cassius, Mark Antony? This ambiguity around the characters and then the, the, the misuse of language, that, you know, which we can relate to politics today, perhaps, really makes us ask questions about everything we say 
about every word we utter about and about the point of art and the point of theatre, their relation to politics. That's so interesting. I mean, are there any other thematic or textual concerns of this play that we should consider that we haven't already? I'd say something about the the the, the pace, perhaps. It's a really kind of new political play. I mentioned that there were other plays at the time about this topic, but one thing Shakespeare does here is he does something that's really fast. He doesn't wait to the end for Caesar to die, for example. You know, Brutus gets convinced relatively quickly. It's a fast action play. It's short. It's half the length of Hamlet. <laughs> and I think that's important because it's telling us that life can change very quickly. Politics can shift very quickly. We've seen it in the UK, haven't we? How many prime ministers in quick succession? That's the kind of thing it's telling us, that, that nothing is forever and things can change very quickly. Once the most powerful person in the world, Caesar was actually the biggest celebrity in the world, you know, truly in his time. Suddenly gone. We should talk a bit about the performance history of the play. What do we know about that? And did it occupy an important position in Shakespeare's performances at the time? Well, the Globe Theatre opens around this time. The Globe is this purpose-built theatre that Shakespeare plays a part in, constructing with his company. It's a shift away from private theatre. So private theatre in the past, like the Blackfriars Theatre, for example, would have been very unaffordable for most people. The plays would have been in a tight setting. You even had snobs sitting on the stage uh, to show off their latest hats and things. It was a very different kind of theatre. You now have this private theatre where you can pay a penny to stand in the pit and it kind of democratises the, the art. And there's a tiny note hidden in the 16th century diary of a Swiss physician. And it tells us that Julius Caesar was, to quote, very pleasingly performed at the Globe Theatre in September 1599. And that's the year that Shakespeare's acting company has constructed this playhouse. So it's likely that this is the first play performed in this brand new theatre, perhaps written especially for its opening. And I think that's striking as a purpose-built public playhouse, democratising theatre, allowing the commoners to pay, pay a penny to stand in the pit, to look up at the stage. If this is the first play there, then it's a real indication that Shakespeare is talking about issues that are important to everyone, to all strands of society. So the performance history really begins with the Globe Theatre. That's so interesting, the fact that if that is the case, that really adds weight to how important Shakespeare saw the themes and ideas of this particular play. It does, and I think there's something to be said about the Roman dictator, the most powerful person in the world, being killed on the stage the first day of the Globe Theatre, <laughs> you know, if, if, that's, if that's the case, which it may well be. And something to be said about this fast action. I think there's, you know, the fact that it's in the Globe Theatre, first play ever in this, in this venue, let's make it a shorter play. That makes sense to me as well. So I think there are also sort of uh, literary and, and artistic consequences to that performance being at the Globe. And how have interpretations of this play, and I guess its themes, changed over time? I mean, that's still, that probably still remains a question of performance history, because it's certainly a play that's been performed over the centuries and adapted to the concerns of that present moment, often in the same way that the characters manipulate things in this play. People have manipulated the play for their own ends. It's been presented, you know, to evoke, you know, Mussolini's Italy, Nazi Germany, you know, there's Orson Welles. A decade ago or so, the RSC set it in Africa, which was a very vague term because Africa is, you know, three times the size of Europe. But I mean, it was looking at sort of coups that happened there, apartheid, building on the fact that Nelson Mandela 
highlighted a passage of this play about death while he was on death row in Robben Island. From my research, I know that in early 20th century Egypt, for example, is performed very much as an anti-British imperialism play. In the US, we have the Booth family who put on a play to fund the Shakespeare statue in uh, Central Park. One of them, John Wilkes Booth, ends up assassinating President Lincoln in a theatre. And his letters show us that he saw himself as Brutus from this play. Most recently, there's there's been controversy in the US when Caesar was cast to look like uh, Barack Obama and uh, more famously as, as a very clear Donald Trump with his wife, Calpurnia, even having a Slavic kind of accent in um, 2017 public theatre performance in New York. So it's it's adapted for to, to match people's concerns and agendas, we could say. And finally, why do you think this is an interesting play to perform, to talk about, to consider in 2023? I love that kind of question that brings it right to the present day. And I think there are lots of questions here about human nature, the discrepancies between different aspects of our life. For me, it's it kind of surprising in that sense that it mixes the public and private. We get to see or we get access to the most powerful men in the private realm, in the bedroom, so to speak, like Brutus and Caesar with their wives. And suddenly that perfection through rhetoric that they show in public is so flawed when they close their doors and they're in the private realm. And we get to know that the world's most powerful person has insecurities and feelings and uh, private sides. That to me speaks to things that today in terms of like work-life balance even, you know, or the the personae that we put on at work compared to at home or, you know, the scenes in the play go from lovers in the garden, which is very private, to these bloody killings in the main road, which is very public. So we're forced to ask a question about whether there's a link or what that link is between public and private. I think, you know, these days, as with, with the Caesar as Trump example, tragic heroes also get us to think about populism. Tragic heroes are neither fully good nor fully bad, and we love and hate them. And, and Brutus is called noble and wise and valiant and honest, and he loves Caesar so much, yet he still kills him. So there's a, there's a huge flaw there. And he loves his wife so much, Portia, and yet he abandons her and she kills herself. Again, very flawed. So through these flaws, Shakespeare's getting us to question what it means to rule and what it means to be ruled. And he's doing so in the context of a, of a very pivotal society, a, a sort of the origins of the polis, the, uh, the origins of society, the Roman society, uh, one of the most important societies to ever exist. From a personal level, I think I see two political comments myself, but I, I guess with reception, with how we read and, and receive plays. A lot of the time it's it's down to our own ideas and the way we've been affected through the way we've been raised and so on. So for me, I think that there are two things. The first is that usurpation inevitably results in civil war. I think I see that, for example, in the Middle East, South America, in most places really, that there are consequences to usurpation and revolution that are long lasting. The second for me is the chaos that, that comes after Caesar's death it's about something about not taking authority for granted. And I think these days I see authority being taken for granted. You know, whether that's, you know, the UK context, it's like politicians who feel safe in their safe seats or uh, frankly, something of a kind of Republican message here. I think especially in light of the coronation in the UK that coincided with the folio anniversary, you know, questions about whether we really need divine 
rule or you know a monarchy on the whole i'd say shakespeare like i said doesn't necessarily offer straightforward answers or give us good or bad situations he presents both sides of the story but those are the kinds of things i take from it in 2023 and that despite him not taking a side he's raising themes that have proved really perennial throughout these whole centuries that have passed since Absolutely. And I think there is something timeless. I think we have to be careful about assigning Shakespeare some sort of, you know, universality without thinking about it. But as far as Julius Caesar is concerned, the themes, there are universal themes and themes that are so central to the way we live and the way that authority works and power works, that we see them. We see them in our everyday lives and we'll probably continue to see them too. That was Islam Issa author of books including Alexandria, The City That Changed the World, out now from Scepter. Don't miss the other episodes in this series, and you can also enjoy four extra bonus episodes featuring experts delving into plays including The Merchant of Venice and Titus Andronicus by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts and heading to our specials feed or subscribing to the History Extra website.